Welcome to Sober Nation FM, a podcast network dedicated to sharing experience, strength, and hope so that you may continue to live your best life of recovery. The Sober Podcast Network is brought to you by Sober Nation. Do you want to live a healthy, sober life? Sober Nation is the world's leading online recovery community. Find support, resources, stories of hope, and even an online treatment program at SoberNation.com. Live a happy life. Be comfortable in your skin and join the recovery movement. Once again, that's SoberNation.com. Now enjoy today's episode. Run. Just just get the hell out. Wherever you are right now, you need to look around and you need to realize everyone doing drugs with you right now is an enemy. They are not your friend. They are not your brother. I don't care how much times they say, brother, and hug you. They are not. They are your enemy. They are there to destroy you. That was Corey Murphy, and this is The Share Podcast. It's time for the Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, Oh. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Share Podcast, and today we have Corey Murphy joining us on the show, and Corey is an award-winning scholar and world traveler. He is also a former heroin addict. Corey has been clean for over 12 years from active addiction, but his story of heroin addiction and how he battled it is an absolute roller coaster ride. Corey is a wicked smart kid. He's super funny. I truly enjoyed recording this episode. We had a lot of laughs. We had a lot of fun. It's an episode you absolutely don't want to miss. So let's dive into Corey's story. But first, if you have not yet rated and reviewed the Share Podcast, Please, one of the best ways to help support the show is to go to iTunes, leave us a five-star rating and a review, and that helps catapult us up the ratings on iTunes, which will make it easier for more and more people to find the Share Podcast. Now, in the past, many of you have asked, hey, oh, how can I help support the show? Well, I'm going to keep it simple for you. The first way is by donating via PayPal or Bitcoin. And of course, I want to thank all of our listeners who have been generously donating every month to the Share Podcast. Make no mistake about it, you guys are making a huge difference. But again, we can always use more, and now you can even send us donations using Bitcoin. So if you go to the website, www.thesharepodcast.com, on the top right corner, there's a donate button. Click on that button, and it'll take you to the page where you can donate either by PayPal or by Bitcoin. On a weekly basis, I have over 5,000 listeners every week who listen to the Share Podcast. So if 100 of you guys would send me $5 a month or more, there are a few listeners that are sending $10, $20, and even $50 every month, that would completely support the show from beginning to end. So for those of you who have the wherewithal to send me $5, either by PayPal or by Bitcoin, then by all means, please feel free to donate now. We could really use the support. Also, when you're purchasing stuff on Amazon, there are those of you that are still clicking on the Amazon link on the Share Podcast website before doing their purchases on Amazon. But again, there are thousands of you listening. If each and every one of you could just remember to go to the Share website, click on the Amazon button before you do your shopping, that is also going to make a tremendous difference for us financially. So I haven't been one to emphasize it in the past, right? But now we've got a solid listener base. I know you guys love the show. I know you guys get a lot out of it. There are those of you, just like in the meetings, that are newcomers, 
The money's tight. Keep listening. The show will always be for free. The Share Podcast private accountability group will always be for free. But for those of you who can, kick in a couple of bucks. Help us out here. And not to forget the Share Podcast private accountability group. Again, it's growing like crazy. Guys, go to the Share Podcast, www.thesharepodcast. Click on the button that says join the Facebook private group. For those of you that are in the private accountability group, you know how vital and important that has become. There's over 1,500 members in there. If you don't want to go to meetings, if you have problems connecting with people, if you need something more than just the podcasts and are not ready to cross over into meetings or some other structured program, then the private accountability group is perfect for you. Jump in there, make comments, ask questions, or just read the posts. There are so many people out there that have the same questions that you have. All you have to do is just read those and then read all the follow-up answers and responses that come. And make sure to subscribe to my weekly newsletter so you know every single time a brand new episode is launched. And of course, if you have any questions, just email me, o at thesharepodcast.com, and I'll get back to you as soon as possible. So now a quick message from our sponsors, and then on to the show. Would you like to join a free, anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Then go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. And don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction, as well as to the family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can easily be found at www.SoberNation.com. Sober Nation is putting recovery on the map. Hey, Corey, thanks for joining us. Hey, oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you on the show today, buddy. How you feeling, man? Feeling good, feeling good. Excellent. I love it. All right, folks. Well, today we have Corey Murphy joining us on the Share Podcast. And Corey is an award-winning scholar and world traveler. He's also a former heroin addict. Born and raised in Pennsylvania, he relocated at the age of 20 to start a new life drug-free. Since then, he has studied abroad on numerous occasions, learned multiple languages, and graduated at the top of his class from the University of Cincinnati's Carl H. Linder College of Business. Sound about right, Corey? Sounds good to me. All right. Excellent. So let's get started. Let's dive right in here. So first of all, Corey, let's talk about your normal daily routine. Well, you know, kind of depends. Um, I am in a, a two-year global leadership program with GE Aviation. Uh, and so, so what that does is that I actually move around the U.S. every eight months taking on different management roles uh, to kind of prep me to be a senior executive at GE someday. Uh, GE, of course, is uh, the acronym for General Electric, which is one of the largest corporations in the world. It was originally founded by Thomas Edison. Um, right now, I'm working as a new product development manufacturing engineer in Jacksonville, Florida. So... 
my uh, job duties down here consist of basically designing the electrical components that are going to go into jet engines that uh, won't go into production until about the year 2020. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah, Would folks, you like to say something, folks? Yeah, and this kid used to be a heroin addict. talking about an about face. I'm listening, going, "Wow, this is a first. <laughs> this yes. kid's smart." <laughs> and 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 I I get that uh, I get that reaction a lot. Yes. Yeah, kind of a little mind blowing. A little mind blowing. So so real quick. Yeah. Because sure. I know, I know that you don't go through traditional twelve-step uh, recovery. I don't think you used twelve-step recovery to get clean and sober. Correct. Correct. I've never been to a single meeting. Okay. In my life. So how is it that you maintain your sobriety? Oh, I tell you, you know, the short version of the story. You know, just kind of starting from the beginning. So, high school, right? How I got into things, and <clears throat> excuse me. So. I I went to a very bad high school, and by a very bad high school, I don't mean that it was an inner city school. I just mean that um, my town suffers from a heroin epidemic, and it's actually only gotten worse uh, in the past years that I've been gone from there. Um, and so what happened to me was that, uh, you know, I had all already kind of started uh, exploring with recreational drugs. I smoked a lot of weed and whatnot in high school. Uh, I played on the football team trying to fit in didn't really work out. My body wasn't really up to that level to be taking those kind of hits. So I ended up getting injured in practice. Um, I actually dislocated my, my shoulder and that required surgery. <clears throat> There's that protein shake acting up. We talked about, Oh, <laughs> trying to choke me out on the air. Let's try and get you through this man alive. <laughs> Yes, the heroin didn't take me out, but this I was going to say, I was going to say that the heroin didn't succeed, but this protein shake <laughs> might might be the straw that broke the camel's back. But um, yeah, so back to the surgery. So I had this surgery, you know, and I was already kind of experimenting with drugs on the side. And what happened was they they lit me up on morphine, right? Totally unnecessary, but they lit me up on mor- uh, morphine. And in addition to that, they gave me a Vicodin. Right. And I loved the feeling. I absolutely loved it. And so I I said to myself, uh, as I, you know, was going to the bathroom, you know, I could barely walk in in the hospital. I still had my gown on. I said to myself, I said, I, I've never felt this before. I don't know what drug this is, but as soon as I find it, I'm going to do it every day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Cause, cause that's how great it felt. And so I, I, I told my, my, my drug buddies about it, you know, the, the hippie kids or the stoner kids I was hanging out with uh, um, kind of on the side. You know, I, I told them about this experience and they said, oh, well, you need to try OxyContin. That's going to have what you're looking for. And that was really the start of my opioid um, abuse, you know, because uh, back then OxyContin was, was all the rage. It was in the news and you could buy it from your friends because it was being, you know, prescribed. Everybody had a half empty bottle in their grandma's, uh, drug cabinet, you know? So started to buy these pills. Uh, friends showed me how to process them, you know, like to get the coating off so it doesn't sting or whatever. Started to snort these pills. Well, eventually you realize that, you know, compared to street heroin, you know, you're, you're paying way too much for the same feeling. You know, right. 
there's much more supply of heroin than there is of OxyContin. Thus, prices are quite different. Supply and demand. So, you know, when when I smoked weed, I was very well. Actually, uh, there's a lot of adjectives that fit there. Uh, one could say stupid. <laughs> one could say adventurous. I I would definitely say destructive. So one night I was stoned, and I had some friends that were snorting a line of heroin, and I said, "Why don't you let me try that?" And you know, it was never the same after that. I I. I, you know, I knew heroin was dangerous, but after I tried it, I was still alive. And I was like, well, can't be that dangerous. It didn't kill me. <laughs> right. You know, it just, just got me high. So what ended up happening, though, was that uh, I was the weed man. You know, I, di- I did sell weed and ended up allegedly uh, selling a bag on campus that someone got caught with. And after several renditions of where they got it, gave my name. That's all the school was really looking for was a name because they wanted to put a head on the pike. Remember, they're fighting a a drug epidemic here. They've got a zero tolerance policy uh, or a zero responsibility policy, as I like to call it, because you you find a kid who's got a problem and you just, you know, sweep that dust under the rug and don't handle it. But that's a whole nother topic. Um, You know, I got kicked out of school and uh, I lost everyone I'd ever known. You know, every every friend. I mean, people that I had seen more than my own parents, you know, because I'd been with them since I was like five in kindergarten. All of a sudden, one day, everything, you know, the structure, you know, the high school classes, getting out of school at 2.30, the faces, everything's gone. This was the days before cell phones and Facebook. You are now at your house and you will never see those people again. And it crushed me. Right. And so when it did... They put me into an after-school program for at-risk youth, and I, I also had a lot of free time outside of these sorts of classes. Now, I didn't meet anybody in my particular program that was bad, but I was on the same rhythm as other kids from other after-school programs or high school dropouts. Mm-hmm. And so when you start hanging out with those sorts of people, you start to think like them. And so what happened was I said, you know, my life is over. You know, at, at the time, I thought there's no way of recovering. There's no way of getting into college now. I've been expelled from school for selling drugs. It's it's game over. It's going to be flipping burgers at Wendy's for the rest of my life. <laughs> and I say that quite literally, oh, because my the first thing my mom said to me was, "Well, you ain't sitting home all day. You're going and getting a job." You know, and so there I was at Wendy's, <laughs> flipping burgers. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I can I can give you an in depth. Uh, analysis of how these burgers are cooked. It is not just flipping them. No, when, you know, I remember the training video like it was yesterday, but uh, anyway. It's good. So what happened then was, you know, I, I went over to my friend's house, you know, and his brother did lots of heroin and, you know, was a convicted felon in and out of prison. And I, you know, I asked him, I said, could you show me how to use a syringe? Because he, he always said to me, you know, I don't understand why you snort this stuff because you're wasting your money. And remember, you know, I mean, I'm I'm a high school kid. I don't have a lot of money. And the, the money factor already got me from Oxycontin to heroin, right? Right. So when you talk about, you know, you can get more value out of it by shooting it. You know, you do a quarter of a bag instead of snorting a whole bag. It was pitched to me. That's when I said, like, well, this would be great because then I can get high more often. And that was how I learned how to use a syringe. And... The next few years, I mean, it just got progressively worse and worse. I mean, 
heroin and especially the withdrawal makes you very emotional. So it makes it, you know, and irrational, you know, the thought process was totally out the window. And so, you know, that made me just, you know, relationships with girls, they just, they don't work, you know, they don't work because you do something crazy and it scares them off, you know, or they find out you're doing heroin, which also scares them off. That's understandable. (laughs) That's understandable. (laughs) Oh, you're not okay with that? Well, all right. Um, (laughs) As you should not be respectable young lady. Um, So, you know, but, and obviously a lot of turmoil at home, you know, my, my brother and I were very, very close and I knew that the type of stuff I was getting into was very, very bad. And so I was actually the one who intentionally did things to push him away because I didn't want him to get sucked into it. There's a happy ending to that story, but not before we have about 15 years of not talking. So, you know, brother won't talk to me. Um, I just, you know, I withdrawal just puts you in such a dark place. You know, you, you think about hurting yourself. You think about destroying things. You don't want to be alive. And that's no way to live. You know, it's just no way to live to have to inject yourself with a chemical that brings about happiness. The, the chemicals that your brain is releasing when you're putting chemicals into your body, there are other things that can release the same chemicals. But the more you pollute, uh, the more your brain gets addicted to the chemicals that you're artificially putting in, your, your brain stops naturally producing this. And, you know, suddenly you're not as excited about things in life as you used to be. Correct. And so it, it wears you down. And um, I was in and out of rehab. I went to um, <laughs> a very special and uh, a lot of people would say uh, controversial uh, rehab program. Uh, but I was in and out of that as well. You know, I, of course, I went to uh, a psychologist at one point. And I wanted to talk about, at the time about my depression. You know, I had had a breakup with a girl. It was kind of heroin related, kind of not. And, uh, you know, really, really uh, just destroyed what little was left. And so I went to, you know, I had my mom take me to a psychologist to talk about this underlying issue. And the psychologist kind of just had no interest in talking about my uh, quote unquote depression. You know, he could tell by looking at me that I was a junkie. And so he wanted to send me the rehab route, mm-hmm. you know, for whatever reason. Well, I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't ready to discuss such things as my heroin addiction with my mother, you know. So I got angry and I stormed out of his office because uh, my parents didn't know. I mean, I think towards the, you know, in the, in the last like year maybe – They started to figure it out. I mean, I remember my mom waking me up once and asking me what it was on my arm. Obviously, Mm. those are track marks. Um, But for the most part, you know, I mean, neither one of my parents have ever used opioids. And, you know, I have found that people who don't have that experience are not very good at picking up the signs, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. You know, I I think that police officers can because they're trained, (laughs) you know. Uh, but, but parents, no, not so much. Um, so here's where the story starts to get, uh, quite interesting. So I didn't like what the psychologist had to say. You know, my, my mom was like, okay, we'll find somewhere else to go. You know, we'll find some alternative. So my mom starts asking around. Sure enough, she has a friend who is a doctor 
he's a chiropractor, but you know, to you know me back then, 19-year-old uneducated redneck from rural Appalachia, a doctor is a doctor, right? right? So I trust this guy with my life, and he introduces me to his friends from Florida, who you know they present me with a uh, a card. You know, they own this um, this rehab in Clearwater, Florida, called Longevity Lifestyles. And, uh, you know, they talk about, uh, yeah, we've got this counseling, you know, we, we hook you up to this meter and we got these cans and we, you know, it's, it's, it can detect, you know, past negative, uh, things that have happened to you and we can get to the root cause of your depression. Well, that, that sounds great. Oh, that was exactly what I was looking for, <laughs> right. you know? And furthermore, there's no drugs, you know, whereas the psychologist I went to see literally suggested to my mother that she, you know, check me into the psych ward, which wasn't going to happen. I mean, I knew I wasn't crazy. I was just withdrawing from heroin, you know. Not that there's like too much difference there, but you get my point. (laughs) (laughs) So the thing is, is that um, I get introduced to these people. Everything seems legit. They're like, yes, we're private uh, counselors, and you can come and stay at our $800,000 house uh, a few blocks from the beach, and everything's nice, and Hulk Hogan is our neighbor, yada, yada, yada. Okay, that sounds great. I'm sold. They said, you know, the catch, though, is that before you do – before you do this counseling, uh, you you know you've done a lot of drugs. You need to get these these drugs out of your system. So we've got a program. You know, it's like a it was like a 30 day program at that point in time. Uh, basically, they load you up on vitamins. They make you do a ton of exercise, and then they make you sit in a sauna for five hours to sweat out the toxins that you've dislodged. Hmm. And so they they told me they said you're going to have to do this program uh, before. Uh, you know, we can do the the life repair counseling, they called it. So I said, okay, yeah, it sounds good. You know, why not ring out the, the dirty rag? You know, I, I thought everything sounded great. I mean, at this point in time, oh, so many beautiful women broke up with me because of heroin, you know? <laughs> what a surprise. <laughs> yeah, right? But, you know, so it got to the point where I was like, man, you know, I got to do something. <laughs> Only part of the reason. But, you know, I mean, it was clear to me that drugs were not, you know, a sustainable lifestyle. That I, I couldn't go on like this between my sanity and just losing friends, you know, the damage it was doing to my family. I, I said, I'll do whatever. So my uh, grandfather had passed away, um, had apparently left some sort of inheritance. So this allowed my family to afford the counseling and this program, which back then they called the purification program. And, you know, it was about $7,000. If my if my grandfather had not passed away, I don't believe my family would have had that kind of money. I think that's really unfortunate for a lot of people struggling with, with addiction, you know? I mean, you, you see these, these rehabs on TV late at night, um, super fancy, and, you know, and, and it's like, who can afford that? <laughs> you know what I mean? Movie stars. Yeah, movie stars, you know? And, and, but that's a whole other discussion altogether. We, ha- we came up with the money, and I went. And so I went to Florida. I did this program, and I took a break from doing heroin for 34 days. I came back to Pennsylvania, went back to school. Within two hours of landing in the airport and back home, I had relapsed after getting back from this program. Wow. But uh, I felt great. I, I mean, so this program made me feel great. 
I mean, obviously, you go without doing drugs for a certain amount of time, you feel great. I felt really cleaned out from this program. But you did heroin. I sure did. Right? Uh, yeah. Well, here's why. So I would later figure out the importance of getting away from your old drug buddies, right? And even if that means moving out of town. And that's exactly what, because that's what killed me. See, I was away for 34 days. I was doing good, hadn't done any drugs, taking lots of vitamin, exercising. I, I felt great. Then I land in Pennsylvania, and I felt so great, in fact, that I wondered, you know, what was all the hubbub about me doing heroin in the first place? <laughs> I couldn't even remember at the time what it was like to do heroin. I couldn't remember what it was like to be high. So out of curiosity, I, you know, my, my best friend was a junkie. His brother was the one that taught me how to use a syringe. Uh, I go right over to their place from the airport, and I try it. And, you know, you, you talk about how smart I seem at the beginning of this uh, podcast. Clearly, I'm not. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> or... Cunning, or, baffling, and powerful, we say. Or I'm the greatest scientist on addiction of all time. Either way, oh. <laughs> As part of, of my research, right. I intentionally relapsed <laughs> upon getting back from rehab. Uh. Um, but so I, I did do heroin again. I did not do as much. So, you know, I don't feel like I, I got totally clean in that rehab, but I, I feel like I it, it gave me an opportunity to kind of just start cutting back. I mean, I did a lot of drugs. You know, I, you know, I was just heroin alone. I was shooting up three times a day at my height. You know, and, and so to come back and to only be shooting up once every few days, granted it's not perfect, but from how low I was coming, it was an improvement, you know, and I appreciated that. Right. So went back to college, my my grades dramatically improved. So instead of D's and F's, it's ama it's amazing how much better you do at life whenever you're actually conscious, fully conscious, uh, for the lectures and the exams and whatnot. Um, GPA came up. And uh, I did go down to Florida to visit uh, these people again. You know, they were not pleased to find out that I had relapsed. Um, they wanted to send me to basically the same program, but in Oklahoma, for markedly more money. So the the you know it was the same purification program, but on steroids, right? Right. Um, and so instead of costing. $1,400 for the, the sauna program alone, they now wanted $21,000. I said, no way. So I, I hightailed it out of Florida. I'll spare you that dramatic story. Uh, that'll be on my blog. But I hightailed it out of Florida. I come back to Pennsylvania and I, I tell my mom, you know, like, I'm not I'm, I'm trying not to, you know, I'm not going to make this you guys' problem. You know, I'm not going to make you sell the house because I was dumb enough to mess around with drugs. You know, I, I was tired at that point in time of hurting my family, and I was trying to put a stop to it. So I did some Googling, and I found out that uh, the same program that I had done in Clearwater, um, they actually did the same thing in Cincinnati. Uh, Cincinnati, my, my mother's friend who referred me to the guys in private practice in Florida, he said, you know, I know the people in Cincinnati. They're way better. Just go there. It'll be the same price, you know, et cetera, and so on. Uh, that's how I ended up going to Cincinnati. It was intimidating. You know, I didn't even know where Cincinnati was on a map. Uh, I, you know, I knew it was in Ohio. I thought it was at the center of the state. I promise you, you know, that I, I made some geographical blunders while I was there. I had no clue where I was. I, you know, <laughs> I barely ever heard of this place. 
But I get to Cincinnati, I do this program, you know, I think it sounds great. And, you know, these guys are talking about how they've got, you know, courses about how to handle life. You know, it's, it's, it's an applied religious philosophy. So, you know, you get to believe in God and you get to learn how to talk to people, all this great stuff. So I went ahead and I did some courses and whatnot. And, uh, you know, they, they said to me, well, what ended up happening was I did these courses and I, what I had done was I had gotten my associate's degree from a community college. And the plan was to go and get my bachelor's degree in engineering at the University of Pittsburgh, which was the closest major university to me. At least it was the one I was most interested in at the time. But I took a semester off to go and do this, this rehab so I could get all the way clean instead of just, you know, halfway. And after taking a semester off to, you know, work for these or to, to do the, the program and then to take these courses, it was time for me to go back to Pittsburgh. I thought about what had happened last time. And I thought about how much peer pressure had played a role in me doing drugs. There were many times when I told myself at home in, in Pittsburgh, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do heroin. I'm not going to go out and do heroin this time. I'm not going to go and do drugs. But then you get that phone call from that friend who's begging you, pressuring you, maybe even blackmailing you to give him a ride or to come with him or to just to do something. And fortunately for me, it was like all the planets had aligned. Everyone was in jail all at the same time <laughs> Whoa. for the first, for the first time, all my friends were in jail or in rehab or a halfway house. And, and they had never all been in jail at the same time. And I, I thought, uh, this is my chance. This is my chance where I can make a dramatic change, a choice, a decision, and no one's going to be here to talk me out of it. So I had run out of money to do these courses because they were very expensive. So I, I said to the people I was staying with, because um, they had an extra bedroom in downtown Cincinnati, I was renting from them. Um, I said, is there any possible way I can stay here? Or, you know, just I'm not going back. You know, I'm, I'm not, I cannot go back to Pennsylvania. I cannot go back to those friends. I need to make a break for it. I need to do it now. And so one of the opportunities, the main opportunity that was immediately presented was, yeah, you can actually work for us if you want to uh, join staff is what we call it. So I, I sign a contract to work for these people. I start working for these people. And as I start to do more courses, read more books, the things that they're teaching, I start to realize that uh, this organization is a hell of a lot more like a, their own religion than they are a philosophy. And uh, long story short, that's when I found out that I had been uh, recruited into the Church of Scientology. Oh, man, I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> I was following along and I was like, this sounds like Scientology. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. Good, sir. Yes, I was unknowingly recruited into the Church of Scientology. So what does one do now? So, you know, at first I thought, you Run. know, because I... I well, yes. <laughs> At first, I thought run, you know, because I, um, you know, I, I was kind of reading some books off the shelves that, you know, were not for people fresh off the street. You know, I was very curious. Uh, excuse me. I, I always had a, a very deep passion for philosophy. I loved reading about philosophy, the mind, how people think, how to interact with people. I loved it, you know, because that's not the type of education that you get in high school. You know, and I did study communications at the community college, so at least I had a taste of these sorts of subjects. Right. Um, so, 
you know, I that's what got me in. I, I but I, as I read more and more and more, you know, because what I all, you know, going in, it was like, okay, well, as long as none of this disagrees with the Bible, you know, because uh, my my faith, despite my sins, my faith had always been very important to me. You know, my my room was covered in crucifixes and crosses, and you know, I went to church every Sunday uh, before the drug use got real bad and. Some idiot convinced me that uh, just checking in was as good as attending the entire mass. It's not, uh, <laughs> but you know, it gets you to the needle an hour earlier, so you uh. say okay. You know, I, I st- but I started to read some things, and I just said, "This is not Christianity. I don't feel like this perfectly aligns with my faith as I have been sold, as what is, what has been told to me." Um, I guess a couple details of that would be, you know, I, I had someone tell me that uh, there is no such thing as heaven uh, or hell. Uh, they're actually mistranslations from the original writings. Uh, heaven just means an eternal state of basically reincarnation. Uh, and, you know, enlightenment is when one breaks free of that uh, and kind of becomes immortal, you know, uh, which I have to admit still sounds pretty sexy. Oh, yeah. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. That same sounds, here. I was that just, sounds yeah. great. Yep. I was right there with you. <laughs> yeah. Sign me up. <laughs> but uh, I figured out I was working for the Church of Scientology. I, I shouldn't say I figured it out. I should say that I, I started to realize that this wasn't just a philosophy school which is how I had been approaching everything. And, you know, as I kind of started to ask around outside of this, you know, church and whatnot, I started to kind of find out, you know, how the public feels about Scientology, um, maybe a little bit of dirty laundry from back in the day. And, yeah, so first thought is run. Um, But I had signed a contract. Now, I didn't know anything about contracts, you know, except for the fact that – you know, I, I knew that you see in the newspaper and on the news all the time, you know, that, that people sue other people for millions of dollars for breach of contract, right? <laughs> yes. So in my mind, that was what was going to happen to me if I left. Now, I already walked away from a $21,000 rehab because I didn't want to leave my family with that tab. I was going to be damned if I was going to stick them with a million-dollar tab, you know. So I was fearful, Um of, of, you know, repercussions like that. Now in retrospect or, or, or knowing, you know, what I know now, um, you know, those contracts they make you sign, they don't even call them contracts anymore. They actually call them a pledge, right? Ooh. Which is far more accurate, um, and less intimidating. Um, if I would have known this was just a pledge, I would have hightailed out the door and said, no, I'm going back to church, but you know, thanks for helping me get off heroin. Um, <laughs> but I didn't, I was petrified. So, you know, I was I, – I fought it for a long time, but eventually I said, you know what, like – and I, I literally looked in the mirror and said this. I said, I would rather be a brainwashed cult member than a junkie. Mm, yeah. I would rather be a brainwashed zombie than a junkie, I, you know. The gift – that's the gift of desperation we're talking about here, brother. Yes, sir. You know, I said, I'm going to go into this and I'm going to be the best Scientologist the world has ever seen, you know. (laughs) And by the way, this was also the exact same year that Tom Cruise jumped on Oprah's couch by pure coincidence. Oh, dude, that's the easy sell. 
Yeah, I was in Scientology when Tom Cruise was doing these sorts of things. Oh. And you were just, from the inside, you're watching it and you're like, bro. <laughs> Seriously? You know? Yeah. Well, yeah. And then, and then South Park came out with their famous Scientology episode, which, for the record, I have actually watched that episode of South Park in a church of Scientology with other Scientologists. So uh, we did have a good chuckle internally. I'm sure that it's, I'm pretty sure that's frowned upon, but still funny nonetheless. So when you're a new staff member, you know, you don't have, I mean, it's kind of like the military in a way. There's kind of like a ranking system, you know, I mean, but a corporation would kind of have a similar system, but there's a hierarchy naturally. Um, And so the newer guys are the ones that go out there on the street and sell these books, you know. Um, And, of course, so I was one of those guys. Um, Proud to say at one point in time I was the best bookseller in the Church of Scientology of Cincinnati. Dude, (laughs) killing me. Oh, shit, man. So there's that, uh, you know, but we had to go to flea markets and malls. I've spent far more time in a mall than, like, I ever – like, I just don't even like to go to malls anymore – well, actually, no, I take the back. I did have a fear of malls for a while, but then I really started to embrace it. And I actually used to go to the mall just to walk by where the book stand used to be so I could reminisce dreaming of lunchtime. Uh, you know, because let's, let's face it, you know, people are – People are not friendly towards Scientologists. No. They are not. You know, and, and the worst part about me being uh, a bookseller was that, you know, here's this young poor kid. All he's trying to do is get off heroin. He doesn't know anything about what he's, you know, he's never read the book he's selling, you know. But you got people coming by and making nasty comments, making threats. It's really unfriendly, you know, and it wears you down. But um, I did eventually think about leaving. Uh, and then what happened was we kind of did some bargaining and, you know, they, they offered me, uh, to train me to be a Scientology minister and to deliver this sort of life repair, uh, counseling auditing, they call it, but this counseling to deliver that professionally. And, uh, you know, I had been told that, uh, they were redoing the, the pay system. So the paychecks were going to get, uh, oh, well, that was the other thing. Oh, so. You know, I, I, I didn't really know much about minimum wage or what the deal was here, but, you know, I was working – I mean, at, at my height, I was working 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. Monday through Saturday. Sundays, we got off at 6 p.m., so we had time to do our laundry. This is for Scientology? Yeah. Um, oh God. I think my pay – when I first started, my, my paychecks were about $36 a week. Good Lord. And, uh, you know, once I got this big promotion and they redid the finance system, I was cruising at about 60 to $80 a week. Um, I know someone did the math once and it was like 15 cents an hour or something. But you have to understand here, oh, these contracts, these pledges, um, they are not employment contracts. It says very specifically in the contract, if you read it, which I did not, um, that you're a volunteer, you're merely a volunteer. You know, they're not they don't have to pay you. And people who have left Scientology have taken the church to court and have lost uh, because of that, you know. I mean, the contract says very clearly you're a volunteer. We will as a courtesy give you an allowance, but there you go. Um, but you know, the the silver lining here is that there is a policy within Scientology that says that you can work outside of the church if you so you know if you need to support yourself uh, financially. 
So a lot of people had like a day job and then they just volunteered at the church at night. Well, me, you know, like I said from the beginning, I was gung ho. So I was, I was learning how to stretch my $35 as thin as it would go. And I'm quite thrifty as a result. I'm proud to say. Oh, dude, you're killing me. <laughs> it is what it is. It is crazy, man. <laughs> um, well, no, like I, I went for it hardcore. I mean, I, as of 2008, from what I understood, I literally had more formal Scientology training, not counseling, but training than Tom Cruise himself. I was able to deliver certain counseling sessions that, from what I understood, Tom Cruise wasn't even up to that level yet. I mean, I was hardcore. But here's why, oh. I felt that I didn't deserve anything else. When I committed myself to church staff life, you know, I understand there's people that leave the church and they're really butthurt about all this, you know, about no pay and no sleep and all that. You know, I I looked into becoming a priest as a Catholic growing up. I've looked at, you know, monks and the life that they live. And what is it? You know, it's a life of isolation and it's a life of dedicating yourself to, you know, in my mind, it's always been God. Um, and it's punishment. And for me, that's what it really was. I didn't feel like I deserved anything, you know. Um, I, The things that I had done were so bad that I, I honestly felt that I deserved to have nothing and to be nothing but a servant. So for a few years, that's how it went. Now, you know, there was some personal drama, some people within the church that I thought were my friends that ended up not being my friends. Um, I don't think any of them are still there. A lot of them have been expelled from Scientology permanently. Um, But I I did end up butting heads with some not-so-nice people. Um, I got fed up, and, you know, one day I was standing outside of my apartment in Kentucky because Cincinnati is right on the border with Kentucky. And uh, so you live on the Kentucky side where it's cheaper in general. Right. I was standing outside and I was talking on the phone with my mom and I was frustrated with um, some things that had happened at work. And uh, I just said, you know what? Like, I'm, I'm putting in all these hours, you know, I'm struggling through this life, you know, I'm living on food stamps. I'd been on food stamps for how many years, living in rough parts of town. Like, oh, God, man. When you have to come home from work and shoo prostitutes off your doorstep, you know you're living in the hood. I'm just going to throw that out. (laughs) Yeah. You know, when you're watching, you know, like we, you know, we've got, we've got alcoholic homeless people that are like, you know, living in our trash. One of them we actually let stay because he was really nice. His name was Daryl, and I kind of miss him sometimes because you could go out in the middle of the night, and he's just like laying there like on your porch drinking a beer, and you you know just kind of sit down and talk. And, you know, But, I mean, really a bad part of town. It was uh, East 16th Street in Covington, which uh, Covington, Kentucky is across the river from Cincinnati. Um, some parts uh, – are, are kind of rough. Back then was really rough. This was about 2006, 2007. Um, when I first moved to Cincinnati, I actually stayed. Uh, when I was running a room from that that couple, um, you know, I was actually we were living in a, a neighborhood called Over the Rhine, which was notorious for their crime rates. I, I, I believe at one point in time they were the most dangerous neighborhood in in america from what i'm told i i know have you ever seen the michael douglas film traffic yes so it was actually filmed in over the rhine i'm told 
uh, really? it's filmed in Cincinnati. Yeah, so I end up sitting, you know, living there when I first moved there to go through this, um, you know, purification program in Cincinnati for for round two. Um, you know, actually there was a drive-by. You know, I I remember I was I was watching the ball drop because I got there right before New Year's and I heard gunshots out the window and I was like, that wasn't. That wasn't gunshots, was it? And sure enough, next day on the news, it's like, yeah, horrible way to begin the new year, a drive-by and over the Rhine. And I was like, oh, good good thing I don't live there, man. That look, <laughs> <laughs> looks dangerous, you know? <laughs> Sitting there on floor three, just, like chalk outside, you know, just – it was bad. But, you know, these were the types of places that you had to live in because when you're not – you know, when you're just – it's all volunteer work, so we say – um, you know, and you're not making any money. It's what you go through. But I felt I deserved it because I was a junkie and I didn't deserve any better. And then one day I was taught, you know, I, I just was talking to my mom on the phone and I said, look, I haven't done drugs in three and a half years. I am rehabilitated, right? That there's a reason there's a past tense of that word, you know, like when I hurt my shoulder and I got surgery and I had to go see a physical therapist, I'm not still seeing that physical therapist. Eventually, my shoulder got stronger and got to the point where it was back to normal. And now I go and I hit the gym at 5 o'clock in the morning sometimes. A lot of times I will hit snooze too often and I will go to work. Then we will look in the mirror before the shower and we will wonder why we don't look like a magazine cover. But that's neither here nor there. Oh, But I can relate. But, you know, it's hard. <laughs> But uh, no, so the thing is, is that I, I said, you know what, like, I'm at a point now where I've proven to myself that I can go without drugs, and I'm ready to get back out there into the world and kick the world's ass. So I left. It's notoriously a lengthy process to leave staff to break this this pledge. It's a very highly sacred pledge in Scientology, so to break it is a huge no-no. But um, you know, I didn't want to piss off the church, um, so I did. A, you know, I went through a lengthy uh, routing off or routing out process, as we call it. Um, you know, and you know, to be honest, I mean, it is what it is. I mean. You know, my, my mom, you know, grew up devout Catholic, is now born again Christian, um, you know, but when she thinks about my time in Scientology, she says, you know what, uh, you did what you had to do at the time, you know, and although things didn't go the way that I'd hoped they would, and although I ended up leaving, um, you know, those people I feel like took me in when literally no one else would. And I, I obviously, I... I can't control uh, my mouth. <laughs> I you can the, the bitterness comes out. I'm very direct. You know, it's the German blood in me. I can't help it. Bring it. Um, Bring it. Yeah, it just it comes out. Yeah, no, I'm a little pissed. Yeah, some things weren't as great as they could have been. You know, but there's probably nowhere I've ever worked that I couldn't complain. Some, um, <laughs> but <laughs> but it doesn't matter. The point is, is that I say, you know what, I'm going to leave. You know, and there was some tension. You know, and People from the church did tell me. They said, if you leave here, I believe you're going to go to jail. If you leave here, are you they, – they, some people even asked me. They're like, did you relapse? Is that why you're trying to leave? Like we need to find out what's going on. And I said, no, I just – I believe that I have a higher purpose in life. And I believe that although I've had a wonderful time being – because I actually uh, – 
was a licensed minister in the state of Ohio for the Church of Scientology. Wow. Believe it or not. Um, and I did get to help a few people, drug addicts included. Um, you know, I helped a, a frat boy who was uh, living in Indiana and was abusing OxyContin, got him on the straight and narrow. He actually works for the church now, believe it or not. At least last I knew he did. Um, I helped a prostitute get out of the sex industry. Um, I did help a, a handful of people, but I just knew deep inside that if I got out into the world, you know, cause I, I spent almost all, every minute of daylight I spent inside this building, this church, I said, I need to get out there cause I, I can help more people. I believe that I can. And so I left and I had people say to me, you know, you know, basically the expectation when I left was that I was just going to fall flat on my face, go back on drugs. Right. Oh, you're, you know, right. Corey, you can't leave. You're going to be back on heroin. You need to have this strict discipline in your life. And I just said, no, watch me. So I left the church of Scientology in 2008. Um, you know, at the time, I mean, you know, I wasn't permanently expelled, so the door was always open, but I was, I just cruised. So, you know, you, you start out and you're being told you're never going to make it in the, out there. You're going to go back on drugs. Um, I immediately went and enrolled at the University of Cincinnati. And within my first year as a student, I joined six student organizations one of which I was the president of, the other one I was the treasurer of, and I won nine scholarships, wow. including, including the nationally competitive Benjamin A. Gilman Scholarship from the U.S. Department of State to study business at the top business school in Turkey, in Istanbul, for an entire year. And it was a, it was a full-ride scholarship. And I was... Don't have the numbers up in front of me. Um, for that particular scholarship, I was selected out of about 3,000 other competitive applicants nationwide. And this was just within my first year. Um, That's if wild. Yeah. If it hadn't been for calculus, I would have had a 4.0. But because of calculus, I had a 3.9. So there's that. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't that just – and as an addict – <laughs> you know, with OCD, it's just <laughs> it's at one point, that one point I'm going to focus on for the rest of my life. I just can't win, you know. <laughs> I just can't win. So here's what we got. First year in school, you know, at college. Um, you know, and it was, it was funny, too. So to become a Scientology counselor as a staff member, you know, like I said, we're talking 7 a.m. to 11 p.m., was the modified training schedule that had been provided for me uh, to me for a year, and um, you know you're in the Scientology Academy, reading Scientology books, reading non-Scientology books, reading encyclopedias, reading dictionaries. Like good God, like you're not allowed every single word that you see that you don't know the definition of. You have to look it up in the dictionary, and they will quiz you on random word definitions. Um, it sounds painful. It absolutely is. But, um, you know, as a high school dropout at the time, because I never finished high school. I mean, I did get a GED, but like that doesn't really count. I mean, it kind of does, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't have faith in any exam that tests at like a 14-year-old level. I, I try to hold myself to the 15-year-old standard. Uh, 
But it is what it is. But I liked it because I I was a I was a hillbilly. I didn't know anything. Um, I didn't know anything about the rest of the world. And so the Scientology training, at least what it did was it turned me into a student on steroids. And I remember walking into the University of Cincinnati on the first day, and talking to this guy about you know maybe eventually I'll go to law school because that's what I was thinking at the time. And the the guy says to me like, well, you know, you have to study so much and you have to get such good grades. And I said, oh, I'm I'm gonna do it. Then what? And he's like, well, let's see you get the grades first. And I was like, bro, watch me, you know, because I've been I've been a student in a Scientology academy for the past few years. And whereas you're telling me I have to study five hours a week to get an A, I'm used to studying eighty, literally. You know, I was afraid of nothing. So I went there like a bat out of hell. First year killed it. Second year, uh, I lived in Istanbul, Turkey. I went to uh, one of the best universities in the country. I studied management there at Boazici University. Uh, I guess it translates to Bosphorus University, but nobody really knows it that way. They prefer the uh, sock in my throat way <laughs> of saying Boazici University. Um, came back to the States. Uh, Interviewed with GE Aviation um, uh, for an internship. They were very impressed with my international experience, so they hired me in right away. Uh, GE Aviation, by the way, um, so it is the uh, aviation division of General Electric. Uh, They do make a lot of – they're one of the leading jet engine producers in the world. Um, Way back in the day – GE Aviation was actually the original Wright Brothers factory. Um, so the Wright Brothers, who of course invented you know flight, uh, they were from Dayton, Ohio. At least one of them was born there, uh, and their factory was actually uh, in the Cincinnati area. And so after World War II, uh, the jet engine was invented. So instead of these little prop World War One planes or whatever. People were starting to experiment with uh, jet engines that could actually put people easily across the oceans, and that's whenever uh, General Electric came along and said, you know, we need to invest in this. And so they went ahead and they acquired the Wright Brothers factory, which is now modern-day GE Aviation, which is who I work for. Um, And they scooped me up as an intern after that year in Turkey. Um, I went back again to Turkey the following summer for an intensive Turkish language and culture program. So that amounts to 60 hours a week in a classroom, uh, basically in the Middle East with no air conditioning, and you're not allowed to speak English. <laughs> Whoa. And this is, uh, this is how one learns Turkish, which I found out the hard way is one of the hardest languages for native English speakers to learn. Uh, for a variety of reasons, which I will not go into, uh, as I'm, you know, we've got time limits here, but there's historical reasons why the grammar is, is totally different and uh, it's tough. And so, but I learned the Turkish. Uh, I came back to the U.S. I worked for GE some more as an intern, and I was going to go back to Turkey, but I had the opportunity to learn German. So. Uh, the University of Cincinnati actually has like the second best ranked co-op program in uh, the country. Uh, from what I understand, they founded the co-op program back in the 20s. So basically, you know, after you get a year or two into your bachelor's degree, you become a co-op, which means you're working full-time half the year. The other half the year, you're a full-time student. So I was doing the co-op with them domestically. Well, the University of Cincinnati actually also 
uh, offers an international version of the co-op program that you can complete after that. Now, it does delay your college graduation by a year, but you get to choose from French, German, Spanish, or Japanese to learn and then do a, a co-op in one of those countries. So me having a lot of German blood, I've always wanted to learn German. I took the intensive German course. So my following summer, again, I'm forbidden to speak my native tongue, which is English, uh, and I'm only speaking German. Um, I end up getting a co-op uh, with GE Aviation in Germany. That was not a coincidence. I wanted to uh, remain with them. They're a great company. Uh, so I ended up working in Germany uh, as an intern. I ended up uh, doing a lot of work on the production floor. So I worked uh, kind of like a supervisor uh, supporting the the production manager. So yeah, working, you know, doing a lot of projects on the floor that typically a, a supervisor or someone in a supervisor or engineer type role would do. Uh, you know, a lot of research studies about how fast things are going, how we can make them better, stuff like that. And of course, I had to do this O entirely in German. Man. So, so that was nice. Uh, and you know, because when you're talking to these hourly workers on the shop floor, um, you know, most of them don't speak English at all, you know, or, or they pretend like they don't until it's your last day. And then they come up and pat you on the back and say, well, Hey man, it's been really great having you here. I really hope that you learned a lot and come back and see us sometime in, in Deutschland. You know, I, I got that on my last day a few times, but, uh, it's neither here nor there. Uh, it was a great experience. It forced me to speak German. That's how I ended up speaking. When I came back to the States, I actually spoke German. I mean, it flows out of my mouth as, as well as English does, which is really awesome. And so um, about the same time, now we're at, the, we're at the tail end of this story here. I know it's it's a mouthful. Uh, <laughs> yeah, been around the world. So. Yeah, is. We're coming in for a landing. <laughs> You're probably over there having to pee or something. I'm just going on and on. And then I went to Turkey. And then I went to... Yeah, you should go to hell is where you should go. You should have a podcast with this idiot. Won't shut up. Christ, you did Scientology and to learn German all in the same lifetime? Leave some education for the rest of us, buddy. All right, my bad, my bad. I'm trying to inspire and empower other people. <laughs> you can cut awesome. out whatever you need to, man. It's all good. But tail end here. Tail end. Um, and this is where, you know, we kind of wrap things up. You know, I was doing all this traveling, um, and, uh, you know, I, I was very involved on campus and, uh, ended up winning the highest award that a student can win at the university of Cincinnati. There were six of us, uh, handpicked by the president of the university of Cincinnati. So out of about 30,000 students, we were the six that were honored with the Presidential Leadership Medal of Excellence. Um, I think there was a great, you know, of eligible seniors for the award, about 7,000 and, you know, six, 7,000. And I was one of six that were were picked. And then here's the catch though, right? Um, or, or the twist, you know, uh, I won this award without ever telling anyone in all of the University of Cincinnati that I had ever done heroin or that I was a recovered addict. Oh, wow. I won the award purely based off of academic performance and, uh, you know, some programs, um, high school uh, educational programs I founded on campus, uh, which due to time constraints can't go into, unfortunately. But I, you know, I won this award and what ended up happening was, you know, we're at some fancy 
uh, dinner club downtown. The president's there. All the top brass from the university are there. Um, and all the winners of these medals had to give a speech explaining, you know, first and foremost, why they moved to Cincinnati, why they chose Cincinnati, and so forth, you know. And so I stood up there and, you know, I had already won the big medal. I had already gotten the big job offer from the large corporation, you know. I had no reason to hide anymore that the hardship that I had come from, you know. And so I, I stood up there and I, I, you know, the other winners, of course, had these nice stories about, you know, coming from a, well, I was a star student in high school and I did this, I did that, I graduated and it just, you know, I came to the university and I continued that path and I stood up there and said something to the likes of, well, ladies and gentlemen, you've, you've heard how you're supposed to go about life. Now let me go ahead and tell you a story about how you're not. And that's how I opened up and made everybody's jaw drop and told them, you know, I was a heroin addict for four years. I've been clean for 11 and I just got hired into one of the most competitive leadership programs in the world with General Electric. And that's my story. Dude. <laughs> that is a strong close, man. That's, a way, that's the way you close. Thank you. Wow, man. It is it's it's mind-blowing really because it starts so low and ends so high. And you know, I've interviewed a lot of people and I'm not interviewing anybody who's still on the streets. So, they're all success stories. We're all success stories. But wow, to reach the achievements and the levels that you have are just for me it's a god thing, you know, and and it sounds like you come from regardless of the cultish Scientology nightmare that you went through, it sounds that you have uh, still a strong connection with your higher power or with God, I'm assuming, correct? God has always been there for me, oh. He's always been there for you, he's always been there for me, he's always been there for all of us. And uh, I, I couldn't credit my recovery or my life to anything other than, you know, God's grace, you know, and allowing me to, to find my way. Uh, and just like you, man, I mean, uh, a powerful message of hope and of possibilities. You can do anything you put your mind to when you decide to walk away from the insanity. Absolutely. Powerful message, buddy. Powerful message. So thank you so much for sharing that story with us. Um, there is a lot to it, and it's going to give... How old are you? I'm 32. 32 years old. You're just a kid, man, you know? And it's 11 <laughs> years, 11 years clean, you know, the sky's the limit. Like, you know, where's the story going to, to lead to, you know? Uh, but again, it's all about the journey. So I guess it goes back to my initial question, which is, you know, how do you maintain your sobriety? Because at this particular stage, yes, you've been driven, you know, you've driven, you, you, you've been driven, you've had a goal or, or various goals, and you've, you've moved around a lot, you've learned a lot of things, you've learned different languages, but is there something in particular that prevents you from picking up that needle again? Yes, absolutely. And it is the taste of success. And I've been quoted as having saying this in various forms for um, the past couple years, because um, I'm actually 12 years clean now, a little over 12 years clean now. It was actually, I guess it was 10 years clean 
when I graduated. So I, five days after I walked in the commencement ceremony, I celebrated my, my 10th year anniversary of quitting drugs. Um, so that, that kind of was what drove a lot of headlines as well. You know, it used to be that I needed a needle to get high, but after I stayed away from heroin long enough for my brain to readjust, I feel, you know, when I get on stage to give a speech, when I win some giant award that honestly, 10 years ago, you'd think no way in hell this guy deserves any of that. That gives me a bigger rush than any bag of heroin I've ever done. Mm-hmm. You know, um, GE actually, um, the nonprofit arm of GE, which is the GE Foundation, they've invested $50 million in the city of Boston where they just moved their headquarters to uh, last year. And a large portion of that is actually going to fighting Boston's opioid epidemic. And uh, as part of that, I'm actually working with the GE Foundation where we're planning an opioid awareness day or week maybe even. We haven't got all the details ironed out yet, uh, but it will be in the Boston area. And they're actually going to fly me up there to speak uh, and I'll be able to reach thousands. I mean, there's about 3,000 employees there. We're talking about maybe them bringing their families. You know, when, when I step in front of thousands of people and I get to deliver this, this, this hope, don't give up on your kids, you know, don't give up on yourself. That success to me, you know, someone that you shouldn't have listened to ever, you know, but now you, you know, that's, that's really what keeps me going. Winning the medal, getting the big job, you know, getting kind words from people like yourself, you know, th- this is my, this is my drug now. It's amazing. And, and it's powerful. And what a great thing that GE is doing and offering. And I think that as we crush the stigma behind addiction and we look at it for what it is, which is a disease, and that none of us, this is not what we wanted in our lives. We didn't make a conscious decision to become junkies and drug addicts and destroy our lives and destroy the lives of the people we love around us that it becomes a lot more palatable and it becomes a lot it becomes something that anyone can get behind you know even a giant corporation like GE can get behind it and say you know what we need to help here these people need help and here's a shining example of somebody who was lost and you know on the cusps of cusps of death and has just made this monumental turnaround turnaround and a lot of it has to do primarily too with your relationship with God, because even through the whole Scientology craziness, and regardless of what kind of cultish, religious nightmare that you're going through, because there's a lot of them out there, at the base of it all, there, there's still the concept of God, of a higher power. I mean, as distorted as, as some religions make it, God, for me, is all, is all powerful, is forgiving, is loving, is caring, and when you call out to Him, doesn't matter who you are and what fashion, he's going to listen. And he knows, you know, what's in your heart. Um, and I think he always knew. I think he always knew what you were trying to accomplish. And eventually he just steered you in the direction to where you are today. I and mean, that's the way I see it. I, I agree. You know, it gets to a point where you're about to make a major decision that's going to change your life. You know, when I decided that I was never going back to my hometown, when I decided that I was going to cut all communication with anyone that did drugs, uh, no matter how much I loved him like a brother. Whenever I decided that I was going to leave the church because 
I, I, I felt like I could reach more people and change more lives. You know, these are all times where I was standing on the edge of a cliff and I let myself start to tilt over. And with my arms spread wide, I said, God, you've got my back. Oh, man. And I took the leap. That's beautiful. That is beautiful. I can feel it. I can feel it. Can you not, though? Can yeah, you not? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it, you know. Well, the thing is that our listeners can relate again. We have been there where that's what we did. It was a leap of faith. Absolutely. There was nothing else that this bag of dope could do for me. It was nothing. And I have nothing left in my life. And I got two choices. I can either try and find a way to end my life or just give it to God. And that's that's why we're on this call right now, because we both made that choice. And we made that decision. So, so let me ask you this then. How do you practice or how do you maintain your spiritual condition today? Well, it's funny you should ask, Oh, So I recently moved to Florida and, uh, <laughs> you know, I understand native Floridians might not feel this way, but as someone who grew up, uh, grew up in the Great Lakes region, damn near Canada, I can tell you that being somewhere with an endless summer is quite a spiritual experience for me. Uh, <laughs> 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 I mean, I, you know, yeah, hey, have some faith in me. I'm a, I'm a minister, you know, and I'm telling you that life by a beach, you know, studies have shown that people who live <laughs> near the ocean are statistically happier and even live longer. Um, you know, it, it comes down to your values. Oh, you know, what, what do you value in life? You know, for me, yeah, warm weather. You know, did I like living in Cincinnati? Hell no. You know, when I, when I moved to Florida, I was going through a box of stuff and I actually found a broken ice scraper. You ever break an ice scraper? Oh, <laughs> no. do you know how much ice has to be on your windshield to physically break an ice scraper? No idea. I'm sure anyone listening from Wisconsin and Minnesota knows what's up. But in general, nah. When when you have to make an ice sculpture before work every day, a you're late, and b that sucks. Okay. So what I valued was never-ending warmth. All right. So I got it down here with a, a beautiful city. Uh, not everyone's into Jacksonville. That's fine. Compared to four feet of snow, I think it is wonderful. And, you know, the thing is, is that um, I never knew that I apparently have a gift at learning other languages. You know, uh, a lot of people, even people that have been around the U.S., I mean, there's a whole wide world out there. Uh -huh. You know, there is some amazing places. I've, I've been to every country that my ancestors emigrated to the U.S. from, and there is just such a story and so much – there's so much great people out there you haven't met yet. There's so much great food you haven't eaten yet. There's so many great places you haven't seen yet. And whenever you start to realize how much more there is to this planet, even beyond just the United States – I mean, you cannot put that into a chemical that goes into your body because it's more than that. And being able to travel, being able to live somewhere that I want to live and having a family that's actually proud of me and respects me. And by the way, that brother who didn't talk to me for 15 years ended up moving in with me last year uh, for a brief time whenever I was living on another beach uh, in uh, <laughs> Wilmington, North Carolina, where I did my previous rotation before Jacksonville. Um, these are not accidents. I am doing the GE Aviation Beach Tour, and I'm totally okay admitting that. 
<laughs> but you know, having having a family that loves me and is proud of me and living somewhere that makes me happy and you know working for a company or at least having studied the type of thing that gives me the power to travel the world as i have i mean that's the kind of stuff i mean you there's just i tell you you know the only time i ever think about heroin is when i do interviews like this where people say how do you do it how do you stay clean it's like well you know what i haven't even thought about it because i've been too busy being alive to think about trying to die. Okay, so so which is a, a beautiful statement. But what it sounds like to me is as I ask you these questions, one is about recovery and the other one is about your higher power. It sounds as though you're rejecting the idea, and I'm just I'm just spitballing here. Uh, the rejecting the idea of being part of a specific sect organization. You know, like I am not part of a 12-step fellowship and I'm not part of a religion, but I do have a spiritual connection and I, I embody that or, 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 or the way I embody that relationship is through living. Yes, I'm just purely too damn busy to do heroin. Oh, <laughs> that, is where, that is the short version of the story. Okay. There are many different ways to get off drugs. There are many different ways. And, you know, although I do not participate in NA meetings, I know many people who have been helped by them and who have been clean for a very long time. I've actually had people at GE. Um, GE did an internal news article about me last year. Um, it was one of the, the best employee stories of 2016. Uh, they, they ended up ranking it as. And I had a lot of people from GE come out of the woodwork and email me from all over the world like, hey, just want to let you know, been clean five years, read your story, higher power, baby. You know? <laughs> and even though I've never been to a single meeting, I respect those people and I will always be there to support them. You know, it doesn't matter which path you take as long as you get to the end. You know, when it comes to how do I maintain sobriety, I mean, I'm fortunate enough, yes, that I've gotten to a point in my life. Now, how did I how did I used to maintain sobriety? Well, I worked for a church that is notoriously strict, notoriously disciplined, where I had no cell phone, no internet, no computer, no television, no nothing but a food stamp EBT card from Kentucky in my wallet, you know, and dress clothes that I bought from the, the thrift store back before Macklemore was rapping about it, you know? <laughs> 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 you know, I understand you may be hipster, but you'll never be. I shopped at thrift stores before it was popular hipster, uh, like myself. Uh, I probably could have worded that better, but the <laughs> concept good. is the same. Yep. No, I, you know, I needed strict discipline to double down and to be restricted and to have no other option than to concentrate on my sobriety. And after a few years, I just recovered. You know, I can't explain it. I just, I got, I, once you've been disconnected from that lifestyle and those people and those places for so long, I mean, you've been broken down and then you build yourself back up. Um, so, you know, who knows though, maybe, you know, maybe the purification program got all those toxins out of my body and now that's why I, I don't think of heroin, you know? That, that's a possibility. But here's the, the but my other question was, my other question was, it, as far as your connection with God, is there, 
have you are you back into Christianity or Catholicism or do you just have a a belief in God now? I am best categorized as spiritual, not uh, religious. Okay, you know, perfect. I was fortunate in in Turkey that I got to study Islam. Um, you know. It was just it was there, you know. I was kind of pushed to to learn that particular part of, uh, you know, that part of the world while I was there. Um, so I did get to, you know, learn the basics of those beliefs and that culture. Um, I just, you know, I I like to wake up early in the morning and go to the gym or go for a run. Um, it, the the neighborhood I live in in Jacksonville is amazing. So the gym here, the YMCA. Um, you know, you can actually see it on my Instagram if you ever want to look it up. Um, the all of the treadmills and the cycling machines and the stair steppers, they all look out over the water, um, out these these windows. So as you're, you know, doing the elliptical or the stair stepper in, in the morning, uh, you actually get to watch the sunrise. You know, and when that sun rises, you know, and I'm physically in shape because remember now I went from being a student athlete to being a junkie, right? you know, to being able to see my ribs and the dark circles under my eyes and the bagginess, you know, and now I'm healthy, you know, and to see the sunrise and to be healthy and to know what I've accomplished that's behind me like a jetpack. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, there, it's really difficult to explain that spiritual connection because it's not something physical. I gotcha. That's it. That's it. A spiritual experience. Yes, sir. Beautiful, beautiful. So, Corey, tell us, uh, for those that are, for our listeners, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Uh, well, they can always reach out to me through my blog, which is themurphymethod.com. Uh, all of my social media information is on there, so I would uh, I would love to get some feedback on this particular podcast. Definitely reach out to me. I've also put some best practices, which should probably change the title of that. It's kind of engineering speak, but um, basically <laughs> some some tips, uh, some things that I have done that I have found successful, you know, in in my recovery. That. That's on my blog as well. Um, you know, that would definitely be where I'd send them to, themurphymethod.com. Beautiful, beautiful. All right, so Corey, we're going to start closing up now. And the way I close up is for the newcomer. So are you ready? Yes, sir. Okay. So my first question to you is, at what point did you have that spiritual awakening, that aha moment as you were getting clean when you accepted that you were powerless over drugs and alcohol, but for the first time had developed the hope that you could recover? I tell you, it's not easy to talk about, and it's definitely not a happy moment. My mom gave these people in Clearwater $7,000 for this fancy rehab. And um, first I said I would go, and um, then whenever the time came to actually you know, sign the papers and, and board the flight, I, I became... I didn't want to go. I changed my mind. I decided that I, you know, I enjoyed doing drugs. I wanted to continue doing drugs. I didn't want to live a life of sobriety because sobriety scared me. You know, you're naked. All of the the fears and the bad things that have happened to you throughout your life, you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to cover them up with drugs anymore. That is why sobriety is so intimidating. And so, you know, I told my mom, I'm not going. I refuse to go. And we had a heated argument and um for the first time in my life, oh, I saw my mother cry. Mm. And I made my mother cry. 
And I'd never seen this woman cry. And I don't mean like some tears. I mean like sobbing. And it shocked the shit out of me because first I thought, I didn't know that this woman could cry. She's one of the toughest people I know. Mm -hmm. And the second thing was that the child deep inside of me finally just rolled over and just tugged at my sleeve and said, it's time to go, Corey. You know, and that was whenever I realized the pain that I had been inflicting. If I could hurt my mother, who else was I hurting? But more importantly, I was hurting the person who had always been there for me and had always gone to bat for me. And that was the moment that I said, you know, I'm still alive. Maybe there's hope. Oh, man, that is powerful. Powerful, man. Thank you so much for going deep. Going deep. That's a powerful, powerful message and a story. And again, I can feel you from over here, man. I know what that feels like to break your mother's heart. Yes, sir. It's the worst. It's the, uh, it, it's it's one of those ones where you want the ground to open up and swallow you up just so you don't have to be a witness to it anymore, knowing that you are causing all of it. Absolutely. No, you, you hit the nail on the head. I know it, man. I've, I have, and I have been there. Many of our listeners have been there. We have crushed the people. It's, it's part of the wreckage that we leave behind, the carnage. And, you know, I'm sure your mother couldn't be more proud of you today. Yeah. No, no, you're, you're right about that, for sure. They forgive. That's what they do. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because I, um, my mother, the, the first time I told my story uh, at that, that fancy dinner, you know, my, when I, as soon as I got to the podium, I hadn't even said anything yet, my mom started sobbing, you know, and I, I hadn't seen her cry since that day uh, until that particular point, you know, but this time it was, it was sobbing because she never thought that she would see me recover. Yeah. And um, unfortunately, that made me choke up, and then the whole speech came across a lot more emotional than it was supposed to be. Uh, but those so are the in best. The future, well, I, I, I don't know. I think in the future, I'm probably going to you know, have to send her on a cruise or something when I'm about to give a speech. So I, just, I can't, man. I just can't. I know. I got you. I <laughs> Total got you. distraction. Oh, it's beautiful, though. That's, that's a beautiful sentiment. All right. So, Corey, do you have a favorite book that you would recommend to our newcomers? Whew, man, one of controversy, but when it comes to recovery, you know, I mean, none of my books have been published yet. What else am I going to plug? I will tell you something that's quite interesting. Um, you know, I, I like to play with fire. I like yeah. to walk the line. You know, I've, I've always been someone who just, I mean, being a rebel is, you can't even put a title on it because, you know, you'd be like every other person that says they're a rebel. So I won't. <laughs> I'll rebel against that. If you were a drug addict, you know, the only book I could think to recommend, it would be a Scientology book, right? But here's why. Um, there's a book called Clear Body, Clear Mind. Uh, and it was written by L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology, where he discusses the principles behind this purification program and about how the drugs in the body can affect your mental state. You know, I haven't done a Scientology course. I haven't gotten any Scientology counseling since 2008. But it was that book that they made me read when I did this program. 
And it was at that point in time that I started realizing that the things that I was putting into my body were affecting a lot more than just my body. You know, it was affecting me mentally and even spiritually. Right. And I think that, you know, I'm willing to bet that most of your listeners have probably already figured that out. Oh, but, yeah. But, you know, I'm just saying that the healthier that I make myself, you know, and I'm not a vegan or anything like that. Uh, <laughs> not yet. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm just saying, you know, you, you need to realize that, you know, just stopping doing drugs, I don't think is enough. You know, I think that, like I said, you know, it's kind of like physical therapy, you know, you, you've ceased uh, creating this injury and now you've got to strengthen yourself. And so drugs, all drugs, you know, they really beat down and batter your body in one way, shape or form. You know, the book goes into a bunch of different theories. Um, some of which I think probably have some traction. Um, I mean, for Christ's sakes, there's a lot of people that have poured a lot of money into this stuff. So it's something's working. Um, you know, I'm not going to tell you to do Scientology, but I am going to say, if you want my opinion, you know, you need to take care of your body and you need to make yourself healthy again. And I think that that is a critical part of recovery. Beautiful. Perfect. Wow. Great suggestion. All right. Well, which leads me to my next question, which, which would be, what is the best suggestion you have ever received? I tell you, it was eighth grade and the gym teacher, Mr. Pribis, he said, you will only be as successful as the people you hang out with. Amen. Yes. I, it meant nothing to me back then, but it sure as hell means something now. You know, you you know, as we go through life, you know, I, my friends now, we've, we've got, a, you know, we're, we're very similar in a lot of ways. You know, I, I don't hang out with, uh, people that do drugs, needless to say, but you, you will only be as successful as people you hang out with, period. Absolutely. Jim Rohn, baby, you are the average of the five people you spend the most amount of time with. Yes, sir. Excellent. I love it. And if you could give our newcomers only one suggestion, what would that be? Run. <laughs> Run. Just just get the hell out. Wherever you are right now, you need to look around and you need to realize everyone doing drugs with you right now is an enemy. They are not your friend. They are not your brother. I don't care how much time they say, brother, and hug you. They are not. They are your enemy. They are there to destroy you. Like, you can always go back years later when you're sober and you're steady and try and make friends with these people again. I promise you, from my experience, none of them will give a shit, you know, because they don't love you. They love the drugs that you do with them. And you watch. They will choose those drugs over you. And wherever you're at, just go. Get away. Get away physically. Get away mentally. If it means moving to another state that you've never been to, I don't recommend Ohio, but you do whatever you have to do, and you get the hell out of there, and you stop talking to those junkies, and you go back to school, and you get back to the gym, and you start over a new life, and then you talk forever on a podcast. That is the key to success. <laughs> uh, a quick side note to all this. Do not go back to your dope-using friends when yeah. you're sober. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he was, you know, there's a little, there's, there's some humor exaggeration. Stay away. Run for good. 
Yes. <laughs> Believe me, if we had more time, I can tell you all about my attempts to try and go oh. back and, and bring other people along the path that I have now uh, trekked. But the fact of the matter is, is that you've either got the will deep inside of you or you don't. And yeah. the people I was using drugs with, once I sobered up, once I reflected on my life before drugs and their life before drugs, we were never the same people. We were never similar people. We never had anything in common. These were people who from the moment they were born decided they were going to do the bare minimum in life and never really be anything. And I was never like that. I wanted to go to college. I wanted to get a good job. I wanted to have a yacht. (laughs) (laughs) Some of these things have been accomplished. Others may be pending. But regardless, those kids will never have yachts. (laughs) You get the yacht yet? I have not. (laughs) (laughs) Coming soon. (laughs) Yeah, coming soon. Well, I don't know. Because then you move to the beach and you find out how expensive they are to store. And, you know, they they say that the two best days of owning a boat is the day a man buys one and the day a man sells one. Amen, brother. Yeah. That is the truth. I'll just rent. There you go. I'll just rent. Corey, man, thank you so much for joining us today. No, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's been wonderful. What an amazing story, man. Seriously, mind-blowing. I loved it. Thank you. (laughs) All right, folks, we have now reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say here in Costa Rica, Pura Vida. Pura Vida. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program.